Welcome to Undruggable, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists' Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, which is a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. While breakthrough discoveries in drug development have been made through the years, 85% of disease targets are still considered undruggable. Ray Deshays, a senior vice president at Amgen, believes that the fourth wave of drug innovation is here, led by a new type of multi-specific medicines that will radically alter concept of how drugs can work and pave the way for new solutions. Even with promising technology like Protax breaking through the barriers of undruggability, Finding compounds that interact with tricky targets requires screening billions of molecules. DNA-encoded library technology is revolutionizing how drug developers screen molecules by marking them with unique DNA tags, just like a barcode. In this episode, I talk to Alex Guliyev, who's vice president of Amgen Research and head of our site in Copenhagen, known as Amgen Research Copenhagen. Prior to joining Amgen, Alex was the CEO of New Evolution, a pioneer in DNA-encoded libraries. Alex, it's great to have you here. I can't think of anybody better to talk about DNA-encoded library technology, uh, which I'll refer to by the shorthand of Dell. We've been working with you now for two years with the idea of applying DNA encoded library technology both to our normal drug development program as an adjunct to high throughput screening but also for the induced proximity platform to try to make molecules that would join together two different proteins to achieve a therapeutic effect. Tell me about the conception and the invention of DNA-encoded library technology and how that was tied in with the creation of new evolution. We will turn back the clock to the mid-80s where rational drug discovery was the way we discover new drugs. We knew about the targets. We were working with isolated proteins and we were screening them to find uh, molecules that could bind to the targets. But we would like to have access to more molecules. And this led to the significant investments in combinatorial chemistry, mainly focusing on synthesis of peptides and nucleotides. So we had two main approaches to the access to more molecules. One was parallel chemistries, one compound produced at a time that would be purified, and we could produce hundreds to thousands of molecules with that technique. But to really accelerate the drug discovery process, we needed to outpass what high-throughput screening can handle in the hundreds of thousands of molecules to the few millions of molecules. This led to the production of mixture libraries. When you work with libraries where you have many different types of molecules present as a mixture, you need to encode them. And many different ways of tagging such molecules were invented in the 90s. And one of the approaches was uh, the use of DNA. It was people at Affimax, a biotech company that came up with using DNA as a tag to carry information about the structures that were produced. They invented a method where you could produce molecules using solid phase synthesis. 
This meant that you would synthesize a synthetic molecule attached to a bead, and then to the same bead, they would also synthesize a DNA tag using chemical uh, methods. Advisors to Affimax, Lerner and Brenner, came up with the idea, why don't we do it in solution instead? This was the very early days of DNA encoded libraries. You would use chemical methods for the synthesis of both the uh, DNA tag as well as the synthetic peptide. The DNA is essentially like a barcode, right? That you can now have millions or even billions of molecules mixed together. And if you pull one out, you could know what its identity was because you could sequence the unique DNA barcode that was attached to the molecule. In the 90s, many different approaches were tried, and the DNA was really not a favorite tag. Everyone thought that this is actually inhibiting the type of chemistry we can do. And also due to the fact that both the DNA piece as well as the synthetic peptide piece was synthesized using ordinary organic chemical methods. First, we need to do peptide synthesis, and then we need to jump over and do DNA synthesis. Then we need to jump back and do peptide synthesis, and then we jump over and do DNA synthesis. Very complicated, and it was not very successful. So when we started the company Nuvolution back in 2001, we thought that we would like to use the DNA because it gives access to some very unique properties, namely the handling of billions of molecules. That is only possible using the DNA tag. One of the very early conceptions we we made uh, was to change the way you synthesize the DNA. Instead of using chemical synthesis for the DNA, we started to use enzyme-based ligation. We could simply use pieces of DNA and ligate them together using enzymes. And that had not really been uh, used before. This was a major improvement of the overall process because this allowed us to really improve on the kinds of chemistries we could do on the organic molecule side. And then the second thing was that no one really believed that you could do true small molecules. So this became our main focus and what we've spent two decades on refining and perfecting. One thing that I've always been curious about Dell technology, it amazes me that it works because if you think about it, you have this organic chemical and attached to it is this DNA tag. The DNA tag is many fold bigger than the molecule to which it's attached. Why doesn't the DNA, which is so much more mass, sort of swap out the effect of the small molecule? Same way as uh, cells can uh, crosstalk by binding to each other, even though the cell is big, there is a portion of the cell where it's representing its, you could say, its hook such that it can bind to another cell. So I think the size here doesn't really matter. It is really about binding affinity for the target. And the DNA is double-stranded. It's huge, but it's like one long, stiff rod. At the end of it, you have this long, flexible clinger, like a string. And then at the very end of it, you have a free-flowing molecule. And it just binds to another target protein, and you have high affinity binding. And it just stays there, just as two proteins can bind to each other. So, Alex, I like to fish. And the analogy you just laid out makes me think of the DNA pieces as the fishing rod, the linker as the fishing line, and the small molecule as the bait. 
The DNA strands encode the instructions to synthesize each linked molecule by combining the appropriate chemical building blocks in the correct order. My question for you now, Alex, is how many nucleotides of DNA are required to specify each of those building blocks that comprise a molecule in a Dell library? We are using 11, but we are actually using combinatorics on the DNA side. Imagine you want to encode 10,000 building blocks. This would require you to procure and quality control 10,000 DNA pieces. You don't want to do that. What you can do instead is combinatorics, where you can use 100 times 100, giving you 10,000 unique DNA combinations. In this case, you only need to procure and quality control 200 oligonucleotide to encode 10,000 different building blocks. When my son was young, we used to buy these Lego kits with literally hundreds to thousands of different Lego bricks and shapes. How many different building blocks do you have in your collection that you build the libraries from? Just around 70,000. Wow. 70,000 different colors and shapes of building blocks. This is really important because if you think about the molecules you get out of your screen, most of the bonds and most of the atoms actually stems from the building blocks you're using. So if you have a very large set of diverse and drug-like building blocks, it also means that you'll get a very large and diverse set of molecules when you do your library. If you combine 70,000 building blocks, you get into the billions of molecules in terms of diversity while still being drug-like. There's a number of different companies now that do DNA-encoded libraries. Are all of them using the same concept of a ligation-based assembly of the DNA barcode, or are there different approaches that are used? Many different approaches raised. You can actually divide the DNA encoded libraries into two core groups. You have the ones that use split and mix. That's what we are doing. And then you have the ones that use template-based synthesis. Template-based synthesis is like what nature does when it translates mRNA into protein. You have a piece of mRNA, you have tRNA coming in with the activated amino acids, and then it's building the peptide string. You have DNA templated synthesis that can allow you to do the same. It's very challenging to actually make true small molecules with that approach, and that's why we're doing the split and mix, which is a much more classical combinatorial chemistry method. Compare and contrast for me what you view as the core advantages and disadvantages of a DNA encoded library versus a conventional library that's used in high throughput screening. With the DNA encoded library technique, you can screen more synthetic molecules than you can do with any other technique that is available. So there's no technique that is as sensitive as molecules that have been attached to a piece of DNA. If you think about forensic medicine, people walks into a crime scene, they will be looking for hair, they will be looking for blood stain, because they only need trace amounts of material. They can amplify the DNA that is present. They can sequence it. And then they are able to tell who was actually in this crime scene. It's the same thing with the DNA encoded library technique. You're working with mixtures of compounds. When you do the screening, you will enrich your library such that you only have binders for your target of interest. And you will get rid of molecules that do not bind. 
but you end up with such small amounts of material like in the crime scene that you actually need DNA in order to have sufficient sensitivity in the system. The key being that the DNA encoded library allows you to screen many more molecules. It's also much more inexpensive. Let's say we have 1 billion molecules. We can screen such a library in a couple of days. If you take a high-throughput screening library where you have all your molecules in plates, if you have a sophisticated state-of-the-art robotic setup, maybe you can screen hundreds of thousands of compounds to maybe a million compounds per week. You can test many more molecules with the Dell technology. It gives you a higher probability of actually finding binders when you have tough targets to work with. What are the limitations? What is easier maybe to do with a conventional HTS library than a DNA encoded library? When you do the synthesis of your DNA encoded libraries, you still need to take care of not destroying the DNA. If you lose your tag, we're not able to see this structure of the molecule. So the DNA encoded library technology has demanded a lot of investments in chemistry protocol development, and you can still do more chemistry outside DNA than you can do uh, in the presence of DNA. I can probably make molecules with conventional techniques that I can add to my HTS library that you cannot do with the Dell library. But I don't think it matters because of the way we design the libraries, I think we compensate by the number of building blocks that we actually use. The other thing, it's much harder to screen membrane-bound targets. You need to have your target in high concentration in order to make the screening work. But if you have membrane-bound targets, it means you need to overexpress your protein and have high density of that target protein in order to actually isolate the binders for your target. What about intracellular targets? Getting the DNA tag molecules into cells is not easy. You need to have rather short DNA sequences and not all sequences and all molecules can enter the cell. And it's very difficult to get high concentration of your target protein within cell. So for that reason, it is easier whenever you can isolate your protein when you work with the DNA encoded library technique. HTS can work more easily with membrane-bound targets, also can work with intracellular targets, and they can get a functional readout, whereas we are getting a binding readout. You wouldn't scratch your HTS library. You will keep on adding to it because it can do things Dell can't do. What is it about Dell technology that might be particularly enabling to go after targets that one might otherwise consider undruggable? When you have extremely difficult protein surfaces where there's a lot of requirements from the protein side in order to accept another molecule to bind to it with a decent affinity, then to find such a molecule that can fulfill all these criteria will require many permutations. If you have a high throughput screening library of 100,000, 500,000 or 1 million, for many targets, you are not able to find binders. You simply need to increase your diversity. You need to screen more molecules. The DNA encoded library gives you access to such much vaster chemistry space than you can do with high throughput screening. So the probability of being successful will increase when you screen more molecules. But it's really up to the designer of the DNA encoded library to make sure you have diversity and not a very focused library. Library design is critical.
the Dell technology has been around for roughly 20 years. What would be, to your knowledge, molecules that are on the market where Dell technology played an important role in their gestation? I have not yet seen the first molecule reach the market where you could say the original molecule came directly from a Dell library screen. This chemistry is still applied to most hits afterwards at some point. I think for people in a lot of other industries, if they look at this and say, wow, 20 years and you still don't have a product on the market, that feels like a really long time. Part of that, of course, is due to the fact that the average duration of a program from inception to the market in our industry is roughly 12 years or so. Another key factor is that there have been major technological advances in Dell technology in the past decade or less that have supercharged this technology and made it so that now is the right time and the right place for application of Dell technology to the problems that we're currently trying to solve. It wasn't really until we could access very large sets of diverse and drug-like building blocks and we could actually afford it that we started to make these very drug-like library. That was a critical achievement. I would say we were not really fully competent until probably around 2011 and 12, where we had the biggest and most complex libraries you could imagine in the Dell arena. Something that has developed in parallel and outside our shop was the sequencing techniques. Going back to 2001, each sequence would cost about $3.00. You would not produce that many sequences. But today, typically from each screen, we get 30 to 100 million sequences at a significantly lower cost. That has been very important because we can simply sample the output much better than we could in the early days. And then logistics, you can build these big libraries and screen them, but the output is still just something that you look at in a computer. So you're looking at sequences telling you that these molecules are probably ligands for your target. You don't know. Do you need to synthesize the compounds and assay them afterwards? This has been probably as important as the Dell technology to actually develop an add-on technology platform for very rapid parallel synthesis of small molecules in very small amounts of material, such that you can very quickly do the analysis ask for tens to hundreds of compounds from your screen and get them assayed very quickly. Without it, you would have the information in the computer, but it's not really confirmed by biological data. And then a technology like this, unfortunately, it's not easy to operate. So you need to have a very skilled team. Without them, it's very challenging to operate the technology with a high level of fidelity. What's over the horizon for Dell technology? Where do you see transformative innovations that can take this technology to the next level. Being able to handle membrane-bound proteins on a regular, robust basis will open up a significant additional number of targets. And I think this is something that is definitely doable, but it will require uh, more investments. The general technology will continue to develop on a regular path, more building blocks, more diversity, more chemistries, more robustness. And then 
every system is fighting with a signal-to-noise ratio where the ability to sequence much more has increased our ability to look deep into the sequence output. But what could actually help us even further would be to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence going forward. That will be able to see things that the human eye and our human developed algorithms will have more difficulty in assessing what is really noise and what is active. Alex, this has really been terrific. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great having somebody with your expertise here. Thank you, Ray. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to Undruckable. And thanks again to Alex Guliev, Vice President of Amgen Research. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Undruggable Q&A webinar discussion on November 10th, 2021. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. Protects are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of induced proximity mechanisms to bring molecules together. In the next episode of Undruggable, we'll talk with Carolyn Bertozzi, professor of chemistry at Stanford University, about her research on induced proximity platforms. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.